Our text for today comes from 1 John 4, 7 through 16. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his, made, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they live in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. Everyone survived Thanksgiving, which is a bonus, right? I uh, usually about 530 uh, the the night of Thanksgiving. My family, I don't know when your family eats. My family usually eats between like one and two o'clock. And by about 5.30, I usually am sitting in a couch and I kind of blind, blinkingly open my eyes and go, this is it. I, I might die because I ate too much. Uh, and then the next day when I put my belt on and it's a loop smaller, I go, oh, I got to go for a run. But I never do. So it works out good. <laughs> Anyways, I do go for a run sometimes. Not very often, though. So uh, today we are finishing up. So uh, if you're familiar with the Christian calendar, the Christian year begins uh, the first Sunday in December is the first Sunday of Advent. And so today we are uh, concluding our series uh, we're calling Mere Christianity, which which is based on the most uh, popular Christian writer to live in the 20th century, that is, a guy named C.S. Lewis in a book that he wrote called Mere Christianity. And then next week, uh, we're going to begin our series for the season of Advent, which we're calling Foretold, where we'll be digging through the Old Testament a little bit and looking at some of the some of the ways in which the prophets in the Old Testament foretold the coming of Jesus. I'm really looking forward uh, to this series. So if you're interested in some of that, it'll be great, and I think it'll be a really, really wonderful uh, Christmas season for us. The prayer that I pray is the thing that my pastor said growing up uh, every week, that every Christmas would be the most significant Christmas you've ever had, that, that this Advent season, whatever, uh, wherever you find yourself in your life, that that season would be the most significant one you've had in your life. And so that is my prayer uh, for this series and for this uh, Advent season. So we'd love, and there's a lot happening. There's six services in December, six whole services, and you all have to be here for all of them, right? That'll be great. That'll be great. So today uh, we are picking up, like I said, on our series uh, based on the, not necessarily based on Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, but following along some of the, some of the some of the thoughts and some of the ideas that Lewis had in that uh, book. And today, I'm titling my message, Trinity, Trinity in Relationship. Because as I said last week, I'm bad at titling messages. Uh, and today, we are going to talk about the central role that the doctrine of the Trinity should have in the life of followers of Christ. And the impact that the reality of the Trinity should have in our church, not just in the church uh, broadly, but in our church specifically. So that's where we're going today, all right? And if that sounds to you like some boring Sunday school stuff, 
which it might, then I want to assure you that when you are really apprehended by this vision of God, it, it fundamentally transforms the way you live your life. This is true. And I also think that this teaching is so true to life, it's so true to how God actually is, that even if you can't seem to get your mind around all the corners of it, all the, all the ideas around the Trinity, which I can't even do, even though it might be sometimes hard to get our minds around it, we find our hearts and our spirits resonating with this idea. Because I truly believe that an accurate biblical depiction of God is what our hearts truly long for. It's what our hearts long for. We want God to be like this, and we want to catch a vision of this type of God, and when we see it, our hearts go, yes, I want more of that. I want more of that. I long for that type of God. And so, I was reminded about this vision of God a couple weeks back when I went uh, to visit a friend in what I like to call enemy territory, but other people call Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, I was, sorry, sorry Nebraska fans, I apologize. I was heading uh, to a little retreat and I called an old friend and I asked if he would want to go get lunch with me. And uh, I had not seen this friend in quite some time. We hadn't spent much time together in a couple of years. But talking with him, it seemed like we had only been apart for about three minutes. You know what I mean? Uh, do you have any friends like that? Friends with whom you could be separated over time and space, but you get back together and it's like everything just kind of picks up right where it left off. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a kind of grace to us. So our lunch turned into an afternoon of coffee and conversation and jokes and memories and for me some much needed spiritual encouragement. You see, my buddy and I grew up together. Uh, he was one of a group of close friends that Ashley and I had growing up in Sioux City. And it was actually this group of people, this close group of friends, uh, it is with them that I first really encountered Christ. The beginning of my journey as a Christian is almost indistinguishable from the relationships I had with these people. They're, they're, so, they're so knitted into the fabric of who I am and who I became as a follower of Christ. And you know, time and time again, I hear the same story from other people as well, that their faith in Jesus has been deeply impacted, that it has been furthered along, that it has been formed and shaped by other people, by e either individual or a group of people. It, it's almost as if our experience of God, the, the way we experience of God, is, in, is informed and shaped by other people. That, that, it, that on our journey of faith, we can't do it alone. That we require others in order to help us understand God, in, in order to help us really uh, bring the realities of who God is into our daily lives. And for me, this is such a powerful and sometimes overlooked aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because let's be real honest for a minute. In our culture, religion and spirituality are considered a private thing, aren't they? They're a private thing. They're something I do by myself, right? I was having a conversation with a friend once about Jesus and faith, and he said to me, in an attempt to actually shut down the conversation entirely, said to me, Nick, that's private. It's private. And I didn't push any further because I got the memo, and I'm a nice person. Uh, I got the memo, but I remember thinking in my mind, no, 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 it's not. 
religious belief is not private at all. It's personal, but it's not private. Uh, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis's and a big influence on his thinking, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, people had better names back then than we do today, uh, explains it this way. He says, a cosmic philosophy is not constructed to fit a man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. A man can no more possess a private religion than he can, than he can possess a private sun and moon. You see, what you think about ultimate reality is quite possibly the most public thing about you because it shapes how you think and interact in the world. And it is about how we as people act, how it forms us as people. And so if it forms us as people, if it, if it, uh, if it de determines who we are in some sense, then how can it be private? Because we are people in the world. And one of the things that has always drawn me to the Christian faith, something that has always rung true to what I have experienced as reality, is that Christianity claims that faith in Christ is anything but private. This is part of the reason that when a Christian is baptized, they are always baptized in front of other people. Other people are either watching and sometimes participating in the baptism. Because when you become a Christian, you step into the fullness of what it means to be a human being in relationship with God and with other people. And with other people. You see, if you know Christ from the core of your being and not just with your head, you will simultaneously be drawn into deeper relationship with God and with other people. It will happen at the same time as you journey you will find yourself being brought more closely into relationship with God, and at the same time, you will find your horizontal relationships will begin to become healthier, more ordered, more real even. Because one of the central things we learn about God when you first begin to explore the Christian faith is that God, in His nature, in His very nature, ontologically, that's a big philosophical word, God in His very nature is perfect relationship is perfect relationship. And the way that, the, that Christians and the Bible have uh, been used to saying this is by saying that God is love. God is love. Have you ever heard this phrase before? God is love, right? You can raise your hand. It's cool. I won't. I won't call on you. Sometimes you hear people that are not even Christians saying this, right? That God is love. They got that from us, just for the record. Because it sounds nice. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds nice to say that God is love. It makes everybody feel good. But when Christians say it, we are doing, what we are really doing is making a very deep theological statement about who God is and what God is actually like in God's being. What we do not necessarily mean is that God simply approves of our love, because sometimes we can say that and we can think that. Or that any time someone has an emotional feeling of love, that that is in some, some mystical way God. Okay? That's not what we're actually saying when we say that God is love. In the language of C.S. Lewis, he talks a little bit about this in, the, in his, the, fourth book of his, the fourth section of his book. We are not saying that love is God as Christians. We are not saying that every time love is felt or experienced, that that is God. And we're also not worshiping a kind of cultural idea about love. No, when the Bible says God is love, it is actually saying something very specific about what, what God is like, what he is like in his nature, in his being. 
that God, at God's core, is pure, perfect relationship. That God is perfect relationship in God's being. And another way of saying is that is that God is perfect. Uh, and another way of saying that God is perfect relationship is saying that God is love. This is what we mean. Because without relationship, love isn't possible. Love isn't possible. Have you ever heard anybody say this? I, I'm just working on loving myself, right? I'm loving myself. Which is not in and of itself a bad statement. You're trying to learn to not be hard on yourself and accept your flaws and things of that nature. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not really true. Because you can't love yourself. It's not possible, actually. Because in order for true love to exist, relationship must exist. And you can't have a relationship with yourself unless you're schizophrenic. And then you have more problems. (laughs) And we're, all right? You have other problems that need to be addressed in other ways. Because in order for true love to exist, relationship must exist. We use, the, we use this language about loving ourselves, but most of us know that that's not real love. Real love requires relationship, because in order for love to be true, it must be focused on something other than ourselves, right? It must be, it must be a, a, a willingness to, to go outside of our own heart and our own mind and go towards the other. You can, uh, you can love something or someone in, for selfish reasons, but that's not actually true love you love it simply because of what it can give you. Love in the godly sense is love that puts another person ahead of oneself. Love in the godly sense is love that puts another person, sets them up as a higher priority than yourself. So in order for God to be loved, there must be a diversity of persons that compromise his being. This is where we get a little theological. And the biblical doctrine of the Trinity best captures this aspect, this feature of God. So the basic doctrine, uh, of, or this basic Christian belief in the Trinity, is that God is one. God is one. But yet somehow, this one God is three persons in perfect relationship. And it's only because this God is in perfect relationship that this God can be love. It's a strange belief, right? People... Uh, I've seen people say one plus one plus one equals four, not one. And then I saw uh, another pastor say, well, one times one times one times one is one, right? That's just stupid math. (laughs) It's a strange belief, but it's absolutely fundamental to what Christians believe about who God is. It is is not something you can do away with and still be a a Christian in a biblical sense. What... uh, that God is one, and that th- this one God, that within this one God, within the God, what is often referred to as the Godhead, are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is the way a pastor from Canada, a guy named Bruxy Cavey, says it. He says, these three persons, manifestations, expressions, aspects of God, we are, per- we are pushing the boundaries of language here, are never treated like three gods, nor are they just three roles that one God plays. They are three distinct personalities within the oneness of God. What at first may sound like simple, uh, simple, like simple contradiction or theologi- theological gobbledygook is actually pointing towards the most profound reality we will ever wrap our minds and hearts around. It means that God is inherently relational. He is community in unity. He is plurality in oneness. What we call the Trinity is what makes it possible to claim 
that God is love. And unless we are uh, relationally bound to this God, unless we are relationally bound to this God who is in his very being perfect relationship, you and I will never truly know what love is. Not in a true sense. Not in a godly sense. And this is what this is, leads us to our teaching text for today, where John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Did you hear the relationality there? It's so nice, right? It's such a nice statement. We could put it on a Hallmark card, right? You could insert it into your marriage vows. It's a beautiful statement, right? It's, it's, it creates a sentimentality in us. But it's not meant to tell us something sentimental. It's meant to tell us who God is, what he's actually like. And it is what God has intended us to live into. God has invited us into this beautiful divine life. The eternal and abundant love that we call God created humanity for the very purpose of being united with him in this type of relationship, within this perfect relationship that we call God. God invites us to partake, to be a part of that perfect relationship. John goes on to talk a little bit more in our teaching text, picking up in verse 9, he says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us, right? Outside of himself, going towards another. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. This is how we know he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Do you notice the Trinitarian language there in verse 13 and 14? He has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior. Father, Son, and Spirit. All in perfect community. All working together to communicate the love of God and inviting us into that same love. Right? You see, we were not created to live a kind of paltry 75 boring and frustrating years on this earth and then die. We were not created to simply punch a clock and save up money for retirement, only to then pass that money on to our kids. We were not made to amass success or notoriety and power. We do not live to simply string together as many simple pleasures as possible and kind of medicate the difficulty of living until we pass on. We were born to share in the perfect love of God. This is why we were born. We were created by relationship 
for relationship. And we were made to offer others the love we received from God in Christ. This is why we were created. So if you know God, just like John says, you will love others. You will love other people. And this is God's ultimate purpose. Not just to save people from something. It's not his ultimate purpose. But to create a community of loving persons with Jesus at the center. This is what God's ultimate purpose is. And this is why the experience of growing in relationship with others is so vital to what it means to be a Christian. Because God does not want single individuals who know and love him. He wants a community. He wants a group of people who are inviting other people to the party of God's love, who are folding in as many people as possible, who are introducing as many people as possible to the goodness and to the grace of this all-loving God, this God whose love is all-consuming even, this God whose love... um, binds the very fabric of our universe together. We are invited into the party, and people are called to be the extension or the bridge by which other people come into the experience with that God via our love that we first experienced from God. You know, this is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He said, God can show himself as he really is only to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. For, for that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. Consequently, the one really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for him together. Christian brotherhood is, so to speak, the technical equipment for the science, the laboratory outfit. I love what Lewis says here. The one adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community. And John says it in our teaching text. If you don't love other people, God isn't present in you. This all leads to this reality that, that without other people, We can't know God without the church, without the body of Christ. We cannot know God in the way that God intended us to know him because we would not then live in the type of love relationship that God is inviting us into. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as solitary Christians. Biblically speaking, there is no such thing as individual Christians. There are people who are part of the the ecclesia, those who are called out, those who are called together for a purpose. That is what Christians are. They are a part of this body. They are a part of this community. They are part of this, uh, they are part of the life of God in love with other people. This Christian community is the adequate instrument for learning about who God is. And this seems strange This seems strange, isn't it? Especially to Americans. Especially to Americans. Because we want to go it alone. Right? I want to handle this on my own. Right? I want to just, I want to like be by myself, alone with God, and I want to do it by myself, and I don't want to depend on anybody else, and I want God to just speak to me, and then I want to go be who he wants me to be. Right? But this is not how God... (laughs) This is not how God set up the world, and it's not how he set up the church. 
It seems strange to us that God would create this kind of, this call together this imperfect body of people, right? Which very imperfect, very imperfect. That he would call together this body of people and he would say, this is the necessary uh, or adequate instrument for you to learn about me. To be a part of this group of people. This is how you learn about me. You're going, why? These people are horrible. Not you, but them, right? Other people, other people. This is what, but this is the way that God outlined our, our world. This is the way he created the church, to be the body of Christ. And it sounds even more strange to those of us who have been wounded by the church, right? Those, who are, those of us who have, been, who have been hurt within the context of a community of faith. It sounds even stranger in, when, when you have those type of experiences, but keep in mind that the, that the scriptures never say that the church, that the community of faith is a perfect community. The scriptures never claim this about the church. You know what the scriptures say that the church is? A reconciled community. A reconciled community. You see, only a relationship that has been broken can be reconciled. Only a relationship that has been fractured can be put back together. The church is the place where we receive the power from God's Spirit to be a reconciled people. That's what the church is. To work through our brokenness and to work through other people's offenses. This is what the church is. To deal with hurts and to deal with pains. To be healed from the wounds that others have dealt us. And by being this type of community, by being this type of community, a reconciled community that loves one another, we show the world what God is like. This is what the intention is. You see, the greatest thing uh, you might ever do with your life is offer someone who for sure does not deserve it, right? Let's get that out on the table. To offer someone who for sure does not deserve it the love you have received from Christ. It is the most powerful spiritual thing you can possibly do. Because it shows that you have tapped into the perfect God-like love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have experienced for all eternity as the Trinity. This, John says, in his, uh, this in our teaching text for the day, John says, is how we know who has that Christ-like love. If they're able to give that, to show it to others. If you can, if you can display in your actions and in your heart, Christ-like love to other people. You have experienced the reality of this divine love of God. And so let's get real practical for a moment because we've kind of been in the theological air here for a minute. Everybody can take a deep breath. I'm not going to be do any more theological gymnastics in front of you today. I might do real gymnastics, but not theological gymnastics. I failed. Uh, my mom put me in this program called Tiny Tots when I was little. It was for, it was like little kid gymnastics, and I failed because I didn't know how to skip, just for the record. <laughs> I learned how to skip, FYI. So parents, if your kid is a little, you know, got two left feet, there's hope for him. He can turn into this. <laughs> All right. So what are the practical implications, right? What are the practical implications for a people who have been caught by a vision of God's perfect love? 
What are the practical implications for a church who are, that are trying to live this out? Well, I have a couple for you uh, this morning. So I have three of them up on the screen. I think they're there. So the first is the church is not a service. It's a community. The second, offense is the beginning of true relationship, not the end. And three, we grow together, not in isolation. So let's, I'm just going to walk through these three implications briefly. So first, the church is not a service. It's a community. Practically, we are all part of this church because we come here from time to time on Sundays, right? That's just practically true. But anyone who has ever truly been a part of a community knows a church is not about uh, attendance. It is rather about relationship. It is about who you know. And this does not mean that you need to uh, bare your soul to the very first person you meet here today. Or that we need to uh, turn into some kind of weird insular cult, right? I think Christian people should be some of the most normal people on the face of the earth in a lot of ways. But I do think that catching a vision for God's love as being perfect relationship makes you actually more open to other people. Like the average person that you rub shoulders with on a daily basis. But if you consider this uh, your church home, if you consider Grace Community your church home, It is the place where you should begin the process of developing significant spiritual relationships with others, right? And what that means is our church is, uh, what that usually means in our church is home groups, right? We have uh, intentionally set aside time in the week to be together, to talk, uh, to communicate with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be uh, a group of Christian people in a home, right? We do this. But it's much bigger than just a program, right? It's much bigger than something that happens twice a year for 10 weeks. And as your pastor, I I just want to say from the outset, I see that here. I do. I see it. It's happening. It's happening. It's uh, Ashley and I have been here for a little bit more than two years now, and it uh, it is happening in a way that it was not happening when we showed up. The Spirit is moving in this place, and that people are being drawn into relationship with God and with one another. It's happening. And I just want to say, this, I'm not, uh, these points are not uh, to be hard on us. It's just to speak the truth. But the reality is, is that I, I see the Spirit doing this. I see God doing this in our midst. So be encouraged by that today, right? But also lean into it. Lean into it. And if you're in this place and the relationship piece has not yet happened for you, if, if, the, if, the, if the, hor- the vertical relationship you feel like is beginning to line up, but the horizontal relationship piece is not happening, ask God to help. Ask God for his help. And second, be a person in relationship, right? Be a person who's willing to step in, excuse me, who's willing to step into those types of relationships. Because if you take the first step, I, I assure you, God will aid you in that process. All right? All right. So that's point number one. Point number two. Offense is the beginning of true relationship, not the end. This is a fun one, right? In our culture, we like people so long as they meet our needs and make us happy, right? This is, we like people for that amount of time and no further. If they're in our family, we endure them, right? But we don't like them and we don't intentionally spend time with them except on Thanksgiving, And then we're so, we just eat the whole time so we don't have to talk. We live in relationship with people so long as they're nice and agreeable, right? 
so long as they haven't ever hurt us or offended us or inconvenienced us or distracted us. But this is not true relationship, is it? And biblically, true relationship does not begin, biblically, this is true, true relationship does not begin until there is a hurt or an offense. Because then you are really living with someone. Then you have really seen and know them. Yeah. Where would we be if Christ had the same attitude that we often have and simply walked away from people who bothered him or were difficult or offended him, right? The scriptures tell us that we were legit God's enemies, legit, and he came to us. This is what the scriptures say. And he still laid down his life for us. You know, uh, very often we are far more, uh, if you want to use an analogy, we are like the crowd crying, give us Barabbas, right? When Jesus is uh, on trial, And yet Jesus is saying in the midst of that, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you know that uh, that God, you have to be able to step through offense and towards other people, right? If you know that Jesus did that for you, you have to be able to work through offense. So here's the thing. If there is not someone in your life who you are actively trying to love, even though they are difficult, then you may not, uh, that you, then you may need to take a hard look at yourself to see if you are loving like John instructs us to love in our teaching text for today. Now, I'm not saying let people run over you, okay? I'm not saying be a doormat. I'm most certainly not saying allow yourself to be abused. If you're in a situation like that, you need to create healthy boundaries, right, in your life. You might need to extricate yourself from a situation in which you're being abused. I'm not talking about that. But if you are a person who can't work through run-of-the-mill normal harm and offense, you have, if you have a tendency to, like, totally demonize people who do anything to you, then it's possible that you need to reacquaint with your, yourself with the reconciling love of the triune God who came to you when you did not deserve it. Uh, Bonhoeffer, who is, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, uh, was a theologian in the 20th century. And in his book, he wrote a book called Life Together, which is all about the life that a small group of people uh, led in a seminary that Bonhoeffer started uh, during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany. This was an underground seminary. They were hidden from, uh, from the German government because if they had been found out, they would have all been arrested. And eventually Bonhoeffer was arrested and killed. But uh, he wrote a book about the seminary that he started to train pastors to, uh, to both proclaim the message of Jesus, but also to resist uh, the German government at the time. And Bonhoeffer has this really amazing quote about community in that book. I suggest if you want to read a great book on community, you can pick up that book. But what he says is that true community does not begin until the the veil of another person's perfection falls away. The true community does not begin until the veil of another person's perfection falls away. You know, I I would say the same thing of marriage, too. Marriage doesn't really start until the butterflies go away and you realize that the person you're sitting across from has some problems, right? This is true. 
This is true. That's when real marriage begins. And in the same way, real community starts when the veil of other people's perfection is pulled away and we see people who, for who they really are. And yet, despite the reality of other people's brokenness and their BO or whatever, they, uh, sorry, uh, we love them. We love them. We actively work to depend on God to help us to love them. That is what real community looks like. All right? All right. So that's number two. And number three, and if the band would come up, number three. We grow together, not in isolation. We grow together, not in isolation. If, if biblically speaking, you have captured a vision of a truly relational God, a God in perfect relationship, a God who in and of God's self is pure and perfect love, who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you captured a vision for that God, you will come to the understanding that we do not, we grow together, not in isolation. You know, I said it earlier, but biblically speaking, there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. There just isn't. To be a follower of Jesus is to follow him with a group of people. Now, I know there are some seasons that, uh, that might not be conducive to us doing that all of the time. I get that. People get sick. People have, distract, people have life situations that slow them down. And what I am not talking about is everyone in this room always being a part of every program that the church is running. I'm not saying that. I understand that sometimes we need breaks and we need times where our nights are free and all of those things. But what I am saying is that we cannot extricate ourselves entirely from a group of people who are following Jesus and think that we are going to continue to grow. It does not work that way. It doesn't. You will not be the person God created you to be until you let him form you in community. In a community. Because God will use other people to do that. That's what God does. He uses other people, other flawed, broken human beings to form you into the person that he wants you to be. This is true. He uses other people's gifts to encourage you and to lift you up. He uses other people's love to, to, to communicate to you about his love. He uses other people's problems to help you express love to people who have problems. He uses the offenses even that other people in this community will lob at you or the off-putting thing that they will say to you that they don't think is offensive but was actually struck you absolutely, absolutely to the core to help you realize that you have an issue that you need to work through. This is what community does. It is the laboratory of our faith. It is the place where God makes us who he has created us to be. This church is a laboratory of faith. And if you are not using it as such, if you're not in this place using your gifts, confessing your sins, challenging each other's mediocrity even, in love, of course, we will not be all that God created us to be. And maybe above all, we are not letting God love us through other people. If you shut yourself off from community, you actually shut off one of the primary avenues through which God wants to love you. Other people. And you will quickly forget what the love of God looks like. This is true. 
Jesus in the Gospel of John, if you ever read through the Gospel of John, you will hit John 7, 16 and 17, which are uh, right before Jesus is taken into custody and taken to be crucified. But he goes to a, to a place to pray, and in, in John's Gospel, he prays what's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. These are Jesus' last and most important words before he is taken to the cross. And he prays this really, really long, chapters-long prayer. He says a lot of stuff in it. He says a lot of stuff that's really important. You should familiarize yourself with it. But he says this really interesting thing in in verse 21. When he prays for those who would believe in his message, who would later believe in him, and this is what he prays. Uh, He prays that all of them, all of them, which is us, would be one, would be one, one in spirit, one in body. He says, I pray that all of them would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Without the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in the name of Jesus, there is simply no chance that the church can represent the love of God in the world. Because this is what Jesus prays. And unless we step out of our isolation and into community, biblical community, we will never know the love of God the way he wants us to know it. Now, uh, since this is the end of uh, Mere Christianity, I should prob- our series on Mere Christianity, I, could, I should probably leave you with a C.S. Lewis quote, um, but that would be cliche, and I'm going against the grain. Uh, So I'm going to leave you with what is probably my favorite quote of all time uh, by another guy whose books you should all read. I'm suggesting a lot of books today. His name's Henry Nouwen. Uh, Henry Nouwen. Uh, And this is probably one of my favorite quotes ever. It's on my Facebook page. I had to look really hard because they hide things over the years. But um, in this quote, he's talking about what the experience of salvation is actually like, what what it means to be saved by God and to experience the saving grace of God. And here's what he says. He says, In the rescuing light, man for the first time recognizes God and his neighbor. The labyrinth of the life he has so far led falls to ruin. Man is free for God and his brother or sister. He becomes aware that there is a God who loves him, that a brother is standing at his side, whom God loves as he loves him himself, and that there together with his church, he believes, he, he loves, he hopes, he hopes. This is, what, this is the experience of, of, of experiencing the love of God. To not only be aware of God, but to also be aware of our brothers and sisters. And there together with our brothers and sisters to believe, to love, This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And so this morning, what I wanted to do, just as we conclude, because we got a little bit of time, if we would, uh, we just, I just want to respond to God this morning. So if you'd stand with us, we're just going to sing, we're just going to sing one song together, and then we'll leave. But as we sing this song, Jesus at the center, just, just know that Jesus is at the center and that he wants to communicate his love to you. That he wants you to know, to to feel afresh this morning, his love and his grace. And then he wants you to go with that same experience and to communicate that love to others. So let's respond to God this morning.
在。